Welcome to the Equibian Podcast. My name's Karen, and I'm here with my co-host, Nathan Wagnon. What's up, Kay Millie? What up? What you doing? What is your favorite thing to eat, Nathan? It depends on what kind of mood I'm in, but I would say, generally speaking, a boneless ribeye. <laughs> That's so specific. What's your favorite dessert? Also depends on my mood, but I really love cheesecake from the Cheesecake Factory. Mm. You can only eat like a slice a month because <laughs> it'll straight up kill you. <laughs> it's amazing. All right. Yeah. You heard it here. Eat your cheesecake in moderation. All right. So today we're going to finish our conversation with Jim Smith, and we're really going to talk about how do we reconstruct away from false narratives into the actual biblical narrative that has at its center the love of God. I hope this encourages you guys. Enjoy. What up, friends? We're back in the studio with Dr. James Smith today, who we're calling Jim. And he is with us all the way from Friends University in Kansas. Just like you probably heard last time, he's a teacher, an author, and he has decided to join us for this podcast to help us better understand who God is. And so thank you for coming back this week. Yeah, thanks, It's great. It's fun talking with you guys. We're glad you're here. And so last time on the podcast, if you didn't listen, we encourage you to go back and do that. But we talked about some of the dominant narratives in the church about who God is. God is angry. God is distant. God expects us to be productive or whatever it might be. And so all of those are wrong. Praise the Lamb. (laughs) (laughs) But what we're going to talk about today is what is true. And so one of the things that I've been thinking about since the last podcast was— We have this moment that we talked about of self-discovery, where we're presented with these false narratives and we get to kind of self-assess of, do I believe that that is true of God? Do I actually believe that God is angry with me? And if I answer yes, that can be really disorienting because theologically, if I know my Bible, I know that shouldn't be true. And so in those moments of disorientation, what do we do with that? Where do we go from there? Can you help us with that? Yeah, that's a great way to frame it. And um, Scott McKnight, who's a New Testament professor, talks about liminal spaces. Liminal means threshold. So sometimes when we're on our journey, there are these liminal spaces or thresholds where we have to go from this is what I thought to now this is what I believe to be true. And we got to walk through those. And liminal spaces are really disorienting because what we believed before was a way we made sense. And you know, we, we get thoughts in our heads and they help us navigate through our life. Mm. And when those get blown up, suddenly it's like, I don't know what to do now. Like what, how am I going to live now that that belief, that idea is no longer governing my way of thinking. And as I'm stepping into the new, that's that liminal threshold to step into a new space. And it's hard to, it's hard to unlearn things. We deconstruct something and say, okay, now I see why that was wrong. That's the deconstruction, but then there's the reconstruction. What what do I now believe to be true? So your question is a good one. It, it phrases it in that way. Man, that's really helpful. And I've been exactly where you're talking about. Karen, do you have personal Oh my gosh, with this? it's like bringing back some serious memories of, wait, I thought Christianity was about productivity. If you're telling me that it's not, I don't actually know how to live anymore. It was so disorienting, and so it took some time to figure out, okay, who is God and what does he actually expect of me? And so it's hard, so if you're there, it's okay. You're not alone. Call me, text me, we'll talk. (laughs) (laughs) So who is God? Who is he really? 
Yeah, I think from a theological standpoint, there's this sense of, okay, we, we have our creedal doctrines. Unless you're just a heretic or some Christian cult, nobody's going to disagree with the creeds of the church. But then there's this functional theology and where those clash in that disorientation, like Karen said, there is this, okay, well, where do I go from here? Do I pick up the scriptures and begin to read them with new eyes, with fresh eyes, with new emphases? Like, what, what does that look like for someone to reconstruct their faith in a lot of ways, their ideas about God? Yeah, well, there's the great word that Jesus uses in Matthew four seventeen, And from that time on, Jesus began to preach, and here it comes. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. But the Greek word is metanoia. Meta yeah. means change. Noia means noose mind. So it means change your mind. We tend to think repent means shape up morally. But right, right. He's, he's literally saying change your mind. And you never say change your mind to someone unless you think their mind is wrong. If I say, hey, Nathan, you need to change your mind about this. I'd say that because I must be thinking that you're wrong. So when Jesus says change your mind, he knows that in their minds, They have certain views, and he's going to challenge them. And that really is what Jesus does at every turn. He is constantly smashing narratives that people had about God, about each other, about life with God, about the kingdom of God. Left and right, he is shattering old narratives. So he was constantly putting people through this disorientation or this deconstruction where they had to go, wait, what? Mm -hmm. he's eating with tax collectors and sinners. This makes no sense. He's talking to a woman. A rabbi would never talk to a woman. A male shouldn't talk to any woman like, you know, this shouldn't be happening. And wait, and she's a Gentile. So let's, I mean, the whole thing is, (laughs) is exploding their brains where they're going everything that he's doing. So let me, let me put it this way. Here's a great story. I think of this a lot and I'm really proud of one of my former students. His name's Mike. And Mike was with me for years when, Actually, Mike read uh, Embracing the Love of God. You might like this, Nathan. He read this and as an undergrad, and he threw the book against the wall. Yeah. He grew up in a really legalistic church. That's how you know it's working. Man. <laughs> yeah, it made him so mad he threw it against the wall. Yeah, anyway, awesome. so fast forward in Mike's story, he eventually got to the point where he believed in a God who is love, and he worked through Good Meaningful God many times and taught it in groups. He went to this youth group, and this was this really insightful thing he did. He got up in front of the, the chalkboard, Uh, with this youth group, and he wrote God the Father on one side of the board. And he wrote Jesus on the other side of the board. And he said, when you think of God the Father, what comes to mind? So these high school youth, they said things like, well, he's, you know, omnipotent and omniscient, all the omnis, right? God is all powerful. He's, Mm. And then they said things like he's distant, he's angry, he's mean. Judgmental. Judgmental. Yeah, those are the things. And then, so then Mike paused and went, okay. He said, let's go to Jesus. What do you think about Jesus? And they've said things like compassionate, kind, merciful, forgiving. All these words come up on the board. And then he steps back and he has them look at the two. And then he reads John 14, 9. And John 14, 9 is, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. I love that story because what Mike did was he didn't put it in their face. He just said, do you guys see what you think? When you think God the Father, you think angry, distant, mean. When you think Jesus, you think compassionate, loving, forgiving. But he says, well, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And that's why in Hebrews, it says Jesus is the exact representation of the Father. Mm -hmm. Or in Colossians 1, Paul says he is the image of the invisible God. He's the icon. He's the picture. He's a snapshot. So what is God like? There's only one answer. Jesus. 
He is the exact representation of God. If you've seen him, you've seen the Father. So a part of the question, I think, what Karen's asking is, is we just have to come to Jesus with new eyes and say, there's no God in back of Jesus. There's like not nice Jesus and then a mean God behind him. The Trinity is completely unified in every single way. So relearning to see that and... And that's what Jesus was doing. He was taking predominantly Jewish people and saying, guys, we've lost our way. The kingdom of God, he didn't make it up. The kingdom existed in the Old Testament, but it just had fallen into captivity. People limited it. God's only for the Jewish people. He's only for the men. He's only for the law keepers. He's only for, and Jesus was going, no, it's for everybody. And that was Mm -hmm. hard to grasp. Yeah. I think it's interesting that when we think about God, There's a handful of places where there are these predicate nominatives that are used about God, like God is love. Mm -hmm. And, you know, you read 1 John 4. I love that verse, Nathan. I love that verse. (laughs) (laughs) It's a good one, but it's where it literally says God is love. And you take from people's ideas about God, which like you mentioned Previously, there's a lot of Greek influence in the way that we think about God with all the omnis, right? He's he's all powerful, he's all present, he's all knowing, he's all the omni things. And yet the scriptures are describing God's essence in a very specific way that God is love. Now, it also says that God is like a consuming fire and that God is these other types of things, but So a friend of mine is a guy named Dan Wallace who does Greek grammar. He pointed out when grammar is set up like this and the predicate nominative there is describing something, but it's not preceded by anything that's like a consuming fire or something like that. When it's an abstract concept like love, then the way the grammar shows there is that this is an ontological category. This is true of who God actually is at his core. And a couple of things, well, that's one that's super significant. But then two, it's also really interesting because I feel like the word love has been totally hijacked in our culture today. And so a lot of people might hear that, hey, God is love. And just like they would say, like, God feels angry or God has wrath, somebody might think that he definitely wants to throw you in the pit of hell forever, right? On the other side, there's also this God is love statement, and people will automatically assume that that means that he's, you know, this super passive, almost like effeminate type mm-hmm. of person who's disengaged and just kind of lets everybody do what they want. And so talk to us a little bit about what does that mean, that God is love? How do those competing pictures fit or are destroyed by this verse, God is love? Yeah, well, that is very profound. Thanks for sharing that about the grammar because, yeah, it doesn't say God loves. It says God is love. So the idea of ontological, the nature of being. So God's being, that is the essence and character of God is how I like to put it, is love. And that's really, really important. Now, then you have to ask the question, okay, what does love mean? Well, love is, I can't beat Dallas Willard's definition, to love is to will the good of another. Mm -hmm. It means I want the good for you. It isn't primarily an emotion. So if to love is to will the good, if God's posture towards everyone 
is to will their good, their well-being, then that means something, right? So that gives us room for the possibility of wrath because wrath is not the essence or character of God. Wrath is God's right response to sin. I want a God who hates sin because sin destroys Mm -hmm. us. God is just. Yeah, and that's the consuming fire you mentioned from Hebrews, that great verse. Love loves into purity, as George MacDonald said. I want a God who loves me so much that he wants to eradicate the sin in my life because sin is that which destroys me. So because he wills the good for me, he will naturally be against sin. And I use the example in the book of Mothers Against Drunk Drivers. The acronym is MAD. They're mad. They should be mad because when someone gets behind the wheel of a car and they're drunk and they take someone's life and destroy a family and destroy, we should be mad about that. That's not good. Mm. And so God's right disposition, his right response to sin is wrath, but it isn't God's character. Right. God's essence and character is love. But I want that God to be to have wrath towards sin. I mean, wrath's a big, strong word. The hardest thing though, Nathan, is to say, can God have wrath towards sin and not toward me? Mm-hmm. That's where you have to make that distinction because we think, okay, I sinned, God has wrath towards my sin, but is that his disposition toward me? No, right. it's love. Love actually drives the wrath, which is a very hard thing for us to see. Yeah. But you know, I think here's a, here's a story. So my mom was like the classic mama bear for me and my brother and sister. And we used to joke, it isn't very funny, but we used to say that we could, we could like do something horrible and our mother would defend us to the hilt. Our mother would, no matter what, you know, if someone harmed us in any way, if someone wronged us, the mama bear went on the attack. And I, I think of that about God, you know, that the love is also active and it does work for our good and it, it can demonstrate itself in wrath. So when I come across those verses, like say, Colossians 3, 6, where Paul's saying, you know, because of this sin, the wrath of God is coming. I can read that and say, well, yeah, that's not because of me. It's because of the sin. And I don't don't want to be a part of any of that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think there's, it's interesting because a lot of times people will put the wrath of God on the same footing as the love of God. Yeah. Right. And, And what's, dude, this is so fascinating. When I was doing my dissertation, I looked at probably, I don't know, six to eight different pretty prominent systematic theology books and went through the attributes of God because I was just curious, like, hey, where are these theologians placing the love of God? And on almost every single one of them, the love of God fit under the category of moral attribute, and it was kind of mixed in with a bunch of other attributes. And then in a couple of them, the love of God didn't show up at all, which was like, man, this is like strangely just ironic that, you know, if if I'm the enemy and I'm wanting to keep people in false narratives, then I'm either going to de-emphasize or try to get rid of altogether an idea of a benevolent, loving God Mm -hmm. who's able to be trusted and to delight in us, (laughs) right? I mean, because that's going to create insecure environments in our lives, and we're going to respond out of fear. And there's no fear in love. So, like, it's so fascinating to me that so much of what we emphasize is we have things on the wrong footing, or we just don't emphasize it at all. Yeah. And yet, the love of God is the driving essence of, of who he is. So... How have you seen that? I like that you bring that up because I believe in spiritual warfare. I just, I do believe in the reality. I mean, 
Amen. Yeah. Jesus was very clear. He, he faced Satan head on in the, in the desert. Yeah. And so I, I believe in that. And, you know, Paul talks about putting on the whole armor of God in, in Ephesians 6. And I, I think we need those pieces of armor to protect us from lies because the devil's been declawed and detoothed. So he can't really hurt us, but he can lie. And he's been the father mm -hmm. of lies, as Jesus said, from the beginning. Yeah. So if I have the power to deceive someone and I want people to be, I want to attack God's beloved part of creation, the thing God loves the most, which is us, you know, human beings. What am I going to do? Well, get them to believe in a God who's angry and, you know, you're back to the Baylor study. Get mm -hmm. them to believe that and then devil can just take a nap. Yeah, totally. Because they're never going to love God. They're probably not going to love each other. They'll judge each other. So the great commandment is never going to get fulfilled. Mm -hmm. And they're just going to run around miserable and judging. And guilt and shame will rule the, the day. And that's where we are, right? Back to the Barna study. What are Christians like? This is what they're like. Yeah. So if, we can get, if they can get us to believe those lies, we're in big trouble. Yeah. So talk about, uh, I've heard you say before that, you know, these two verses that form the foundation of your theology— God is love, and then there is no fear in love. Perfect love casts out fear, because fear has to do with judgment, right? Right. So talk about how did that come to be, to be kind of the foundation of your personal theological outworking? And then what difference has that made in your life? Well, big difference to answer the second question. When I went through this journey, actually, 1 John 4.10 became such an important verse. For herein is love, not that we love God, but that God first loved us and sent his son as a, an atoning sacrifice. So, I mean, the fact that John had to say that, here's love, not that we, right, starts out, because yeah, we start with yeah. us. So here's love, not that we for first love God, but that God first loved us. So the, the primacy of God's loving us first. And then the great Danish philosopher, Christian philosopher, Søren Kierkegaard said, we think God loved us first once, but he loves us first every moment of every single day. God is always loving us first. first. And that realization changed the way that I go about living the Christian life as I realized I don't have to do anything to get God to love me. Hmm. It is not based on anything that I've done. So if that's the case, now the question is, you know, what am I going to do? You know, I often will say to students, like, what would you do if there was nothing else to do? If you just thought, there's nothing I have to do, what would you do? You don't have to do anything to get your sins forgiven. That's taken care of. You don't have to do anything to get God to love you. He loves you. You don't have to do anything to, you know, go to heaven when you die. He's, he's secured everything. Now, what would you want to do? And it's a very disorienting question. And many times they'll look around, their eyes will roll. I, I don't know. <laughs> what, what would you do if there was nothing else to do? But I think until we get to that place where we can realize there's nothing for us to do, until we get there, I think living the life that Jesus called to give us is, is nearly impossible. Yeah. Well, it makes me think of, uh, there's a really good friend of mine. We were in community for a while, but he he's still a wrestling coach and was the 2000 freestyle Olympic champion in uh, Sydney, Australia. So top of the game, mm. he was the best in the world. You know, one of the things that he emphasizes as a wrestling coach is he's like, you are not going to wrestle to reach your maximum potential until you learn to wrestle free. Hmm. All of the angst and the nervousness and the, he's just like, man, truly, what does it look like to live free? And, and I would argue that, I mean, I haven't thought about this critically, but I would just say off the top of my head, I mean, I would argue that 
the height of human creativity can't happen in suppressed environments Mm -hmm. where somebody is where they're not free to express themselves and so it's interesting to me even that you know in our creativity the way we're created to express ourselves is maximized in freedom and you can only live free if you know you're loved yeah as attachment people we are designed to attach and if you're not securely attached to someone namely god then yeah, we're going to be enslaved to a lot of our narratives. I thought a minute ago what you said, when we're talking about God being angry at sin but not angry at me, that's a difficult concept for us to grasp, but I love the way Paul puts it at the end of Second Timothy 2, where he talks about we need to go be ambassadors for the kingdom of God in such a way that people will be drawn— I'm totally paraphrasing, but people will be drawn— to the kingdom of God through our witness so that they can escape the snare of the enemy mm-hmm. by whom they have been taken captive. Yeah. And so it's a. I think it's a God is angry for you, but not at you. Right. There's a, there's a jealousy that's in the best sense of the word jealousy, like you are mine. I love you. I delight in you. I want you. And when other things are pulling you away, like... Like any good father, that upsets me. Mm -hmm. And it's these kinds of things that I think have to reorient us around the actual biblical narrative that God is actually love, that we are actually loved by him. Mm -hmm. And not just loved like he has to, but loved because that's who he is. He's He can't not love you. (laughs) Right. So I mean, I'm sitting here and it's encouraging to listen to what's out there that we're not grasping. Mm-hmm. When you ask the question of what would you do when there's nothing left to do, that is a disorienting question. I was sitting here going, oh. And I think to come to the end of that is rest, like to just rest mm-hmm. in who God is. Mm-hmm. And you talking about living in freedom, I'm like, gosh, I, I wonder how many people, because this is what I'm doing, are listening going, I want that, mm-hmm. and I don't know how to get there. Like, are there... It's ironic because that would be more things to do. So <laughs> this is my constant battle with the Christian life of are there practices? Are there, are there ways? Because I do think this idea of relearning takes slowing down, which we're not good at. I think it takes a lot of time, which we're not good at. But are there any practices or helpful things for those people out there listening going, I want that and I don't know how to get there. I don't know how to believe that. Yeah, I mean, Nathan mentioned in the, our previous time together the – the first practice in the good and beautiful God is sleep. And (laughs) the reason that I did that, it wasn't just so guys like Nathan could go, yes, Yes. I want to do this. Uh, Actually, there was a theological and anthropological reason. And that is that God has designed the human person in such a way that we must spend a third of our lives doing nothing. If we choose not to do that, there's actual physical harm to our bodies if we don't do that. And the thing about sleep is that it's, the most unproductive thing we can possibly do. You're not accomplishing anything by sleep. It's a complete act of grace that God would design us in such a way. He said, one third of your existence, you will do nothing. So there's a theological, anthropological reason behind that practice. The other practice that's really helpful is Sabbath because Sabbath is another way that we enter into a kind of rest that we're basically saying one day out of seven 
I will do nothing that's productive. This is a day where we won't work. I won't work. My dog won't work. No one's working today. And that's also built into the human person. If we break that, that one day out of seven, if we don't do it, again, it's built into the human person. When we go, as we say, 24-7, we'll burn out. Like our bodies, our souls will suffer. Everything suffers. So, I mean, God's designed two things within creation. One is bodies that need to do nothing for a third of our life. The other is that one day out of the week, we ought to be doing absolutely nothing except rejoicing. Like Sabbath should be a time of rejoicing. What's interesting about Sabbath, though, is that Sabbath requires preparation. You got to work on the front end to be able to have a day where you do absolutely nothing. So that's one of the trickiest things about learning how to keep Sabbath is learning how am I going to get these things done so that I can have a full 24-hour period where I am doing nothing. And you don't want to be legalistic, right? Jesus said the Sabbath was made for us, not us for the Sabbath. Again, it's not trying to earn anything. Mm -hmm. But when you put those together, sleep and then Sabbath, they're pretty powerful. Like they're built into who we are. They are things that we do. We create conditions to sleep. I mean, I, I don't sleep well when it's hot. I don't sleep well if I've been on a screen. So I do things to prepare for sleep, but sleep is literally doing nothing. Mm. That's very convicting <laughs> and just informative of like, you're right. God did design us to stop because we have limits. And so yeah. can I ask you a personal question? Sure. What does your Sabbath look like? Yeah, absolutely. It's a great question. And I'm happy to entertain that because people don't know really where to start. My Sabbath is Saturday. I am a part of local church work on Sundays and have various things on Sundays. So for me and many people in ministry, Sunday's not a Sabbath day for us. So mine is Friday night to Saturday night. So Friday evening, that's when everything kind of shuts down. We have time of fellowship and food and recreation. Saturday, my wife and I will get up and we'll take a walk and we'll go to the dog park with our dogs or do something. And we enjoy the better part of a day. We'll read the paper. We'll spend time on the deck. We'll have a community meal together. We'll invite friends over for that. So it's a time of feasting and fun and friendship. Good alliteration with the letter F there. That's what it is. I don't work. I don't turn my computer on. I specifically don't allow myself to do those things. Again, not legalistic. So if someone calls me with an emergency that something has to happen, charity always supersedes discipline in the spiritual life. Charity will always trump the discipline. So if, if I'm fasting and someone wants a meal with me, I'll break the fast, whatever. So I'm not legalistic with Sabbath, but pretty strict because if I'm not strict with it, things will get in the way. It drifts. Mm. Yep. No, that's super helpful. Like you said, I think people hear that word and they're like, do I just sit around? Like, how do I do that? And I love the fun feasting and fellowship. Yeah. And I, I think this gets it. God is fun. Yeah. Like he has fun. He's joyful. So I think of Chesterton, right, where he says that God has the eternal appetite of infancy. You know, like, do it again, do it again. <laughs> like talking about the sunrise you yes. know, and the new day. And then he has this great image. He was like, for we have sinned and grown old, and our father is younger than we. I remember somebody asked me recently, like, when you close your eyes and pray to God, what does he look like? You know, which is a great question. And I think for me in this part of my growth and development, I think when I pray to God, more often than not, he's younger than I am. There's like a fierceness in his eyes, but it's inviting and like a smile, like, dude, check this out, you know? But a lot of times we really struggle with that because we think he has to be this stoic and he's not fun. 
And yet it's like, no, I meant on the Sabbath, like you should have fun. You should invite your friends over. You should enjoy food and drink and, and sex and enjoy life. You heard it here first, people. <laughs> <laughs> but like, like he looks at that and he's like, good for you guys. Like I created you for, you know, for those things to participate and be in, in my joy. Why don't you talk real quickly to just that idea of, you know, how we do struggle with the idea of God being joyful. Yeah. Well, it's hard. There's a, there's a lot of tragedy in the world. So, mm-hmm. and we feel that. And so we assume again, God is the, you know, the eye in the sky that's watching it all. He must be really, really sad and disappointed and angry and all of those things. So it's hard for us to think that God is the most joyous being in the universe, but God is the most joyous being in the universe because God sees the larger picture for these things. We, we can only see the temporary and we can't see the larger view of things. Again, you know, we talked about what is the question, what is God like? There's only one answer. It's Jesus. And Jesus said to his disciples, he said to them, my joy, I give to you. Mm-hmm. And they didn't say, oy vey, pass the aspirin. Like they didn't, they didn't say, I don't want his joy. That guy's a bummer. He was clearly a person of joy. And we see that in him. Many of his stories are funny. Many of his parables have like jokes in a way. Yeah. Uh, I think he was a real person of joy. There was a movie done, an Italian movie a long time ago. I want to say it was in the eighties, but where Jesus was this sort of overweight, bald guy who was playing soccer on the beach with his disciples. And people were really offended by it. They were mostly offended that he was playing. Uh, it wasn't that he was balding and overweight. It was yeah. just, how could Jesus have been playing soccer yeah. and having fun? No fun. No he fun couldn't, he couldn't Jesus. have had any fun. Yeah. Right. So, yeah. Yeah. yeah, and so we just assume that's the case. But no, God is the most joyous being in the universe. Mm-hmm. That's a hard one for us to get around, but I think we have to really work on that to say that is who God is. And I love what you said about the Chesterton quote because my good friend who's gone on to glory, Rich Mullins, wrote a song called Growing Young based on that Chesterton quote. And that's what it is, right? We want to grow young. We want to to have that. And Jesus said, you can't enter the kingdom unless you become as a child. And and not childish, but childlike with that same kind of wonder and that, what do you call it? The eternal infancy of... Yeah. Yeah. The eternal appetite of infancy. Yeah. It's that this doesn't get old. Yeah. You know? Little kid sees a bug and it's the greatest thing ever. It totally is. Not just the other day, yeah. I have a three-year-old girl and Jules was playing with a, a ladybug that she found. And unfortunately, within three minutes, the ladybug was dead. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> she didn't, she didn't realize that, but she sent the ladybug off onto ladybug glory. Yeah. But, uh, but then she kept playing with it. And I was like, Hey Jules, the ladybug is dead. And she was like, Really? And I was like, yeah, it's dead. Do you want to flush it down the toilet or throw it away or whatever? And she was like, no, I like playing with it, you know? And she like <laughs> carried this ladybug corpse around <laughs> playing with this bug. But just like the, the joy of discovery and newness and like, and you think about that and it's like, well, that's, that's what God is like. Yeah. So last question for you, God is love. And so my question for you is how has the love of God impacted you? transformed you, changed you? Well, I wouldn't be doing anything I'm doing if it weren't for that discovery. Like, as I said earlier, I was on my way out of ministry by the time Brendan Manning had confronted me with a question or observation that I didn't love God. So it's what keeps me going. It's what gets me out of bed. I'm blessed to teach college students and graduate students. And I love being with 
students and talking about God. It's, it's what energizes me. And if if I if it was an angry, mean God, I wouldn't you know want to do any of that. So I was just on a plane this weekend talking to people in Huntsville, Alabama. Never been to Huntsville, but I was there just to talk about God's love. It's what energizes me and excites me. I can't imagine doing anything else. I do what I do for nothing. Don't tell my employer that, but <laughs> I love life in the kingdom with Jesus. That's awesome. It's almost like uh, it's almost like this is the fuel that we were created to run mm-hmm. off of. Yeah. That's awesome. Well, Jim, thank you so much for your time, man. I'm grateful for the Spirit's work in your life. And he blessed you, bro. There's there are a lot of friends and mentors that have shepherded you along the way. And, yeah. and then now you get to be that for so many other people. And so I'm grateful for God's kindness to you. Oh, man, I'm grateful for you guys. And this is this good work you're doing. So thanks for having me on the show. Man, we're, it's our privilege. Hey, we hope you guys enjoyed this conversation with Jim. And more than anything, I hope and pray that wherever your narratives about God are false, that he would gently and in his kindness expose those for the lies that they are and reinforce in you the love of God. We really were created to be in union with the triune God, and at the very center of who God is and his character is his love. And so he loves you. He doesn't just love you because he has to. He loves you because he likes you <laughs> and, and delights in you. And I think a lot of the Christian life is supposed to be lived, all of it actually, is supposed to be lived out of the knowledge, not just in our head, but in our heart and, and in our experience of that we have been loved first, that he delights in us. And that's my prayer for you, that you would be able to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ and to know that love that surpasses knowledge. So that's our prayer for you. We're grateful that you guys listened to this, and we'll see you next time. Thanks for listening to the Equipping Podcast. I've got here next to me, Jared Stevens. He is a fellow in the Institute here at Watermark. And Jared, what's your one primary takeaway from this episode? How to reconstruct my faith on the goodness of God and his love for me. God is good. God is good. And he does love you. And he does love me. Keep it simple. Hey, we hope you guys enjoyed that. Uh, If you did, rate it, leave us a comment. Those things actually help. So if you want to ask a question or just send us an email, shoot us a message at equippingpodcast at watermark.org. You guys have a great week. Peace. Bye.